Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians and chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide, this is on page 977. That's correct. Uh, Today we are going to begin uh, the second half of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is six chapters long. And uh, if you remember from what we've talked about over the past several weeks and months about the book of Ephesians, Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he begins the first three chapters talking about what God has done, the indicative of what God has done for his people in his son, Jesus Christ. And then the second half, starting in chapter four, God focuses on the imperative, that is how we ought to live in response to that. He is he is shown us what God has done, and in response to that, after this wonderful prayer at the end of chapter 3, he now begins telling us how we ought to live in response. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And today he focuses on the first and foremost thing he wants us to, to understand as a church is that we must pursue unity, unity in the body of Christ. Um, this week we'll look at just the commands for unity, but next week we'll see how unity is fleshed out and made more robust and beautiful through the diversity in the church and the maturity that ensues. So if you would, please stand with me out of love and reverence for God's word as we read from Ephesians chapter 4, because God does indeed speak to us through his word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so ends the reading of God's word, let us pray that the Lord would indeed bless it. Father, thank you that you do indeed speak to us. We do pray that you would would unite us in our faith, you would unite us in our love for one another, that you would remind us of all that you've done for us in your son, Jesus Christ, how you have chosen before the foundation of the world that you would unite all things in him and that you are working that out through your church, that you might display your glorious grace. And so we pray that you would bless your word this morning. Uh, Help me to speak with gentleness and courage and boldness as we proclaim these things. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Friends, we live in the United States of America. Uh, Wars have been fought to establish this country as it has formed. Wars have been fought to preserve that union between the states. We would say that we have a form of structural unity within our country. We have a common government that uh, governs this country. We have a common constitution that determines how this country will function. And we have a common currency that we use in the midst of this. And yet, uh, it doesn't take a very astute observer these days to see that our country seems anything but united. We have become so partisan, so uh, politicized, 
so con- uh, contradicting to each other in uh, almost everything that we believe, that it's not too much of a stretch to think that one neighbor would be very much opposed to another neighbor down the street, or one family member could have serious conflict over the things that we believe. We simply have very little uh, that we hold in common anymore that unites us uh, as far as a country. But our concern this morning isn't about the country that we live in, but on the church of God. But in many ways, just as our country was formed e pluribus unum, that is, out of the many one, so we've read over the past few chapters how God has chosen to unite all things in his Son, Jesus Christ. And as we read in chapter 2, that God has taken Jew and Gentile and made one new man in his person, in his Son, Jesus Christ, so that we form one body by his one spirit. And yet I guess the question for us is, while we have that invisible unity, that spiritual unity that is truly ours, that is God's plan, do we see visible unity within the church? Because visible unity must be there. Because God puts his handiwork on display in front and before the world. And this reality must work itself out in the way that we live and display itself as visible unity within the church. And, so, and that's actually what Paul's focus is in this passage, is that we must eagerly and urgently pursue the unity that we have in Christ Jesus so that we can put it on display. And the way we do that is by how we love and live with each other. Because Christian unity depends on Christian charity. Christian unity depends on Christian charity for each one of us. And now, um, before we get too far into our passage, I mentioned uh, in the introduction that um, Paul in chapter 4 starts to talk about imperatives, that is, how we ought to live. Kids, think of commands that our Father would give us. These are imperatives. And it's uh, before we get too far into that, we have to be careful to avoid the danger of moralism. And I'll define moralism simply as this. Uh, moralism is pursuing moral conduct for the sake of moral conduct, but detached from the reality of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. Because moralism is antithetical. It is opposed to the message of the gospel. We don't just live moral lives. That's not the point. The point is that God has condescended and pursued after us. And because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, as a result and on the foundation of what God has done, that is why we live the way that we do. And we can see that even in how Paul Paul has written the book of Ephesians. He has gone to great pains throughout the first three chapters to tell us primarily what God has done in Jesus Christ. There's only one command in all of the first three chapters. And yet, when we shift to chapter 4, we see commands galore. And and we see it starting in in verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he tells us we must walk in a manner that's worthy. But worthy of what? 
not just a, a worthy life, but a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, which he has told us about. We've been called before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. We've been called to be united in his son. And so as a result of that calling, we are called to a worthy life. And notice he says, I therefore. So the therefore is pointing to everything that he's told us up until this point, this glorious and majestic plan that God has had before the foundation of the world that he purposed in Christ and is bringing about now in the course of time by the power of his spirit. And so this um, this is a working out of what God has done. And when he says, you know, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Kids, I don't know if you've ever seen those old-fashioned scales where you'd put things on either side and things would have to balance out. That's kind of what Paul's hinting at is that we have received this glorious truth in what God has done for us in Christ. And what Paul is saying, live a life that's worthy to that. Our life must balance out to the glorious doctrine, the glorious truths that God has done for us. Now, it may seem like that's an awfully tall order, and you're right, but remember what Paul had said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. He said, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that we should walk in them. And isn't that what he just says right there? He says, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so it is, we know that it is God who has saved us and set us apart and now works through us in a manner that is pleasing to him. He is causing us to be that new creation that he has created us to be. And in this particular passage, his focus is on unity, that we would be united to him. We see it right there in verse 3. This is kind of the pinnacle of the passage where he says that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And if you see that as a pinnacle, what we see before that in verse uh, 2 is kind of these virtues or characteristics that he calls us to do, which um, are the means of that unity. And then whatever falls after verse 3, verses 4 to 6, are kind of the basis of that unity. So let's let's take a look at what he says are the, the means of that unity, how we pursue that unity. If it's so important, what do we do? And it shouldn't surprise us that he begins with humility. He says, uh, live a life worthy with all humility. Now, um, it's not surprising because humility throughout Scripture is an an essential quality. It is a mark of a Christian. Uh, now, it would have been a surprise to the original audience because this word that Paul uses for humility was one that was a negative term. It was one that was viewed by the the, the Romans as base, low, like a, a castaway. Like This is a, a term for a servant. But Christ Jesus came and gave honor and glory to this term because he came in the form of a servant. And he humbled himself even to the point of death. And so, kids, like if humility is so important, if that becomes kind of the beginning to this, what does humility mean? How ought we live it? Well, some people would say that humility is not thinking less of ourselves, 
but thinking of ourselves less. Not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. And that might that's helpful to a certain extent, uh, because pride or, or humility in this sense uh, could, could be defined as not being overly impressed with your own self-importance. And considering others as better than yourself. Um, but another way of kind of thinking about it, how, maybe perhaps how we get there is, I think humility comes from understanding the truth about who we really are and what we really deserve versus what we've gotten. And then, by extension, how we ought to live as a result of that. So, thinking of who we really are, Scripture is clear that we are not the masters of the universe. We are creatures created by the creator of the universe, that God, out of his sheer grace, created us in his image. And because we're the creature, we don't get to come with our standard of this is the way that we relate to God and the universe. We are dependent beings. We are dependent upon him for that knowledge of what we ought to be and how we ought to live. And he created us that way, and he, as part of that, he made us dependent not only on himself, but on one another. He said, it's not good for you to be alone. And he created us in community with one another. And so that is God's grace in creating us and relating to us. And yet our response to that was to rebel, to, to demand independence, to say, I can be like God, I don't need God, I will be my own God. And this wasn't something that we should be rewarded for. This was insolence against the sovereign king of the universe. And so God put us under a curse. And as a result of that, who we are changed. We were created to be holy and blessed and perfect, and yet now we became feeble and frail in every aspect of our life. Our bodies waste away. We see that as we get older. We get sick. We die. But our, our mental capacity also became corrupt. Claiming to be wise, we became fools. So now we think we see things clearly. We see who God is clearly. We see our experience clearly, and yet we don't. It's corrupted. It's false. We, we grasp for everything but what we should. And our morality has changed. Um, scripture says that all our righteous deeds are filthy rags. We can't please God apart from faith. And so we become liable to his wrath and curse. That's what we deserve. The wages of that sin is death. And yet God gave us something that we didn't deserve. He pursued after us in his love. He gave us his grace, which we didn't deserve, abundant grace. And not only that, he sent his son to set us free from these things to, so that his spirit might give us eyes to see the deadness that we are in. But he gave us life. He breathed life into our bones and light into our eyes so that he gave us his spirit of wisdom, his life, his strength, his power, so that we could be alive, so that we could know him, so that we could have a right relationship with one another. But even though he's done this, we're still complex. We're not unified. We're not living out everything that we ought to do. We are still we are saved, and yet we're still sinners. We still are feeble and frail in our thoughts, in our actions, 
we still sin against one another, we still sin against God, and so we're still dependent upon him, and we're still dependent upon one another because God gives, he communicates his grace through us to other people, but we also receive that grace that he communicates through his people. God uses his people to care for his people. And I think that, my friends, is the heart of humility. Yes, it is not being overly impressed with your self-importance, and yet it's realizing that we are utterly dependent upon God for everything. We're not strong. We're not wise. We're not smart. We're not righteous, save for the work that God does in and through us. We are dependent upon his wisdom and his righteousness and his holiness to to work in us, but not just for our own sake. God blesses us through his people. And so we are dependent upon one another in the church who share that same spirit. And we are dependent on sharing that grace and that love with each other. So if that's humility, remember the point is that this is, this is focused on the unity that God would bring in the church. Because that humility is, is there to re- help us recognize that we are fallible. We do make mistakes. So you know, humility, if you see it in contrast to pride, humility, pride says, I deserve, I want, you ought to give me. I am right. I know that I'm right. I don't want anyone to know about how wrong I am in my soul or body or mind or anything. And so I hide it. So whereas pride would make excuses for mistakes and failures, humility is willing to confess with full-throated apology for sake of reconciling with brothers. Pride wants to demand its way because they're smart enough to know better, but humility says, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I need the insight of my brothers and sisters. Maybe I need to consult what God's word says. Maybe I, maybe I need to change fundamentally the way that I think. And so humility pursues after unity. Humility pursues after its brothers and sisters in love. And so it is foundational. It's actually foundational to the other virtues that Paul lists out. And the next one is gentleness. Well, that to me is surprising that gentleness would be one of these virtues that Paul would command for his church, but it really shouldn't because the Lord Jesus Christ, this is, this is yet another characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, scripture says that he was so gentle that he wouldn't break a bruised reed. Uh, that he wouldn't snuff out a smoldering wick. He came with a gentle hand. And perhaps this is a way that, ladies, you can lead by example. Because the Lord has designed and equipped you in a unique way as life givers, gentle life givers, to be an example of gentleness for us all. For your kids and for your husbands and the men in the church. Because First Peter 3 says that wives should clothe themselves, should adorn themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the Lord's sight. 
But it's not, men, don't think that it's limited to ladies, that this gentleness is there. We're all called to gentleness. Not only is it in this passage, but the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus, the young pastor, an elder who would set an example for the flock, he said. But he over and over said, uh, live with gentleness to your people. He said, um, when you have opponents, correct them with gentleness. Uh, and in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter tells all of us, he says, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you, but do so with gentleness and respect. And gentleness, I think, is a recognition that others will be in error, that there's something that can be wrong in the course of the church, but the way we handle it is what is of importance. It's not that we accept error, but the manner by which we deal with it is gentle and loving. And we do so with humility, recognizing how God has dealt with us. Because God has been gentle with us. God could have wiped us out and poured out his wrath in abundance, and he would have been justified in doing so. But our God is gentle and gracious, and so must we, for the sake of unity. The next two uh, virtues that Paul lists certainly go in hand in hand. Um, he says, uh, with patience and bearing with one another in love. So patience, kids, uh, there's different words, you know, different meanings for patience. This isn't a waiting for things, patience. This is a being able to endure when attacks come against you, when things happen that aren't, don't go your way. Can you patiently endure through them? That's the type of patience that is there. And Paul's reminding us that part of this unity that is at, that is at stake, it'll be broken because if you respond poorly to the way that people respond badly to you, but you have an opportunity to bear patiently under that and bear with one another in love. So that bear with one another... Um, has a, the sense of standing firm or uh, dealing with things that are annoying. And that happens in the church. <laughs> that happens with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Either they're attacking you, which is annoying, or just our different personalities rub against each other. But God is saying that, no, we, we pursue unity because we bear with one another and we persevere with one another, even though we're different, even though we have different viewpoints that grate on us and threaten the way that we live. But it's not a begrudging bearing with one another, is it? It says, bear with one another in love. So there's a full-throated affection that we ought to have for one another because we are part of the same family. And that's the final virtue, which is love. And if Humility is the foundation of this structure. Love is certainly the capstone. Love ought to propel us to pursue the unity with one another, to pursue one another. But it also ought to fuel every engagement that we have with one another. It ought to uh, fuel the gentleness and um, the patience. There ought to be uh, a, a brotherly love that we share for one another. 
So these different virtues have this one particular purpose, which we already said, which is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that term, eager, um, it's almost like Paul is saying, make every effort to do this. That the threat, the unity of the church will be threatened. And so be urgent about it. It's, it's in your court to do this. And notice what he says. He says it's eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Notice he doesn't say uh, create unity or promote unity. It's maintain unity. Because remember, Paul has told us that we are united in Christ. He has put us together in Christ, but that unity is threatened. And it's important. It's important enough that Paul says, make every effort to do this. Um, deny yourself, if, you, if need be, to preserve this unity out of love for your brother. And um, he says, maintain the unity of the Spirit. This is a unity that is generated by the Spirit. And then he says, in the bond of peace. So if humility is the foundation and love is the capstone, envision peace as a fastener that is holding the structure together. We're we're pers- per- pursuing this peace, which comes through um, humility and love. And we can't have unity without peace, can we? And that's why one of our membership vows is to pursue the peace and purity of the church, because peace is important. And there's lots of different ways that we can break it. So that is the emphasis, that is the purpose, uh, this fastener of peace. But then Paul, as if he's going to put an exclamation point on this purpose of unity, he shifts from these virtues which cultivate unity to the basis for our unity. And he gives us seven ones, if you see them. Uh, He starts off and he says, there is one body. And this is something that he said over and over again, that yes, there, there may be multiple different churches, but there is one church, one body of Christ. He has said that God has said that he was going to unite all things in Christ, and he has made one body out of Jew and Gentile in the one Savior, Jesus Christ. And if there is one body, then there cannot be conflict within the members of that body. We must pursue peace because we are part of that one body. But then he says, there is one spirit. It is the spirit that unites us to Christ, and is the spirit that unites us to one another. It is the spirit that he says is making a dwelling place for himself within this body. And if God is not divided, then his spirit is not divided. So if his spirit is dwelling within us, then how could we be divided against one another? How could we not pursue this unity? Any spirit other than one that is promoting unity and love is not the spirit of Christ. If there is division, that is not a spirit that God has given to us. And so there is one body and one spirit. And he says, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. We have been called by God with this great eternal hope. We saw this hope before. And this isn't a hope like, man, I sure hope that God does something. This is God has given us a great hope that we will be in his presence forever and ever, that he will truly redeem us for all eternity, that we will have blessed union with him for all eternity basking in his love and his grace. And brothers and sisters, that's your hope, but that's also the hope of every one of your brothers and sisters. 
So if we're pursuing that same hope, how can we not pursue it together in unity? And the fourth one is one Lord. We who are offshoots, we were not a people, have been brought near by the blood of Christ to be in his kingdom. He is our Lord and our King, and he has commanded us all to be one kingdom, not multiple kingdoms, not a kingdom divided against itself, but a kingdom that is exalting the King, growing together in unity. He desires the spirit of unity and love within his kingdom. And then he says one faith, the faith This is the faith that saves us, the faith in Jesus Christ. And if I have a faith that is Christ and Christ alone, and your faith is Christ and Christ alone, and this Lord that I trust, this this faith calls me to live out unity and love for my brothers, then yours does too. And we're united by that faith. We ought to be united in how we live and we love one another. And then he says, as the sixth one, one baptism. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean water baptism, but they're related. Paul is talking about the act of being brought into the body of Christ. This is being baptized into Christ, as he says in Romans chapter 6, where we are united to him by his spirit. And water baptism, the sacrament that we practice, is a sign and a seal of that spiritual reality of being united to Christ. And what he's saying is that we've all come into Christ in the same way. We've all been baptized into Christ. We share union with him. How could we be divided? How could we not pursue that unity? There's no distinction between how we receive Christ and his benefits. And then finally, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We have one God that we are worshiping. We have one Father. We have all been put into the same family. And while our human families may be divided, this Father calls us to be united with our brothers and sisters, to love them, to pursue after them, to have intrinsic unity and fellowship with one another. And this is a God who is over all and through all and in all. He is reigning supreme, but he is also working through us that which is pleasing in his sight. So unity is important. And when when we think about this for Zion, uh, it may be easy for us to say, well, unity will be a little bit easier for us because we're small. We're small and we're new. Um, Most of us, uh, if not all of us, join together in this church to extend the kingdom of Christ in this particular place. We want to see Christ glorified. We share a similar doctrine, what we believe. And we probably share a similar way of how we think we ought to do these things with our similar vision of what ministry and church ought to look like. But those are structural things, structural unity that we have. The question is, do we really have unity within our members. In fact, I would say that as small as we are and as new as we are, our unity is threatened more than perhaps a large church, or it certainly could could be threatened more. And it could be threatened easier because each one of us, being as small as we are, 
each one, each member has a greater impact on the whole of the church. So each one of us runs the risk of creating division much easier. We don't have a long-standing ministry momentum in this church. We don't have um, so many people that one person who is a, a troublemaker can be, you know, quietly dealt with on the side. We know and we love and we are connected to each one of us much more closely. Um, and our faith is tested through this stuff because this is a faith issue. This is a faith because um, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ demands a response. But this is like heart surgery. Uh, humility, while incredibly important, is one of the hardest things to come by. True humility is something that is wrought by the Spirit in the crucible of community. And that's where we are right now. Faith responds by saying, I am willing to lay down my life as the Lord Jesus laid down his life for me. I'm willing to lay down my life for my brothers and sisters. It responds with the humility and the growth in Christ-likeness that God calls us to do. And it's so easy for us to be able to just simply turn and walk away when something's annoying or something's difficult or we see conflict. But that's not pursuing e unity and being eager about it. Um, we have to have the courage to deny ourselves for the sake of one another. We have to have the courage to love the Lord Jesus and to say, I'm not going to regard myself as more highly than I ought. I'm going to honor and love and promote one another. The Lord um, has given us each other as the means by which he ministers to us, but he's also given us to each other so that we can serve and we can be those vessels of God's grace. And it's easy to pull away and to separate and to ridicule, but we have to have the courage and to love with sincerity uh, each other from the heart uh, with humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit to eagerly pursue after that love so that this work that God is doing in and through us, through his church, this manifold wisdom that Paul had said, the world would not say, well, this is a sham. God has put us on display, even in the midst of prosper, to say, here is my handiwork. Here is my handiwork in uniting all things in Christ. They are a reflection of my beloved Son. We have to have the courage to live that out for one another, out of love for each other and love for Christ. And we have the courage and the grace to do so for God's glory and our eternal benefit. Let's pray together. Father, unity is something that you've given us and yet is something that you have called us to maintain. I pray that you would help us to have an urgency for that, that you would help us to see how we individually can threaten that unity. Give us the humility.